Hello and welcome to Any Stupid Questions, the podcast where three comedians ask experts in important things, stuff you ought to know but don't. I'm Danielle Ward and joining us to explain Israel and Palestine to us this week, yeah, good luck everyone, <laughs> is Hugh Lovett, Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, a pan-European think tank. Hello Hugh. Hiya. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> I mean, you know what? Let's just dig in. Let's just do it. What's the worst that can happen? Uh, also joining me are comedy writer Jack Bernhard and comedy writer-producer Clarissa Maycock. Hello. Hello. Now, as we've realised, no one listens to the end of podcasts, so if you want to plug anything, you're going to have to do it right now. Jack. Uh, I'm on Twitter, and so look at Twitter. It's a good website. What is your Twitter handle? Uh, That's probably helpful. <laughs> at JackBurn23. Clarissa, have you got anything you'd like to plug? Oh, I've also got a Twitter account. I'd love some followers. <laughs> What's your Twitter account? <laughs> it's at Clarissa DM. Hugh, have you got anything you'd like to plug? Also, you can uh, see some of my work on the, the website of ECFR. We're doing a lot of work on Palestinian politics, uh, which is quite cool. We have like this cool online platform, which you can check out. Right, so Hugh, first question, and I think it's the one we're all thinking... Who has got the better food? <laughs> so that's the thing that gets me into the most trouble. Is it? <laughs> well, then you sound like a lucky man. <laughs> Let me try to, to start neutral. Both sides has amazing cuisine. Of course, uh, Israeli food is very much informed by the vast Jewish diaspora that's out there. So you can go to Israel and you can eat all sorts of uh, great food. One of my favourites is a shakshuka, which is kind of like this omelette they sort of uh, fry in tomato sauce and uh, Tabasco and other things. But there's also, as with everything on this issue, it's controversial. Really? Uh, <laughs> food. Oh. And so my favourite food is uh, it's called falafel, which is kind of like these sort of deep-fried chickpeas. <laughs> but, uh, we know if what you're falafel is. Yeah. Yeah. We love falafel. We all know it's from that country. Ah, exactly. Okay. So, um, <laughs> it's from Shepherd's Bush. No. <laughs> so everyone in the Middle East claims it. Uh, Palestinians claim it, Lebanese claim it, Syrians claim it, Egyptians claim it, and Israelis claim it. And um, this is where all the trouble starts. No. <laughs> um, but I'll, uh, I'll go out on a limb and say my favourite falafel is definitely um, Palestinian from the West Bank. Wow, well, already. <laughs> we have to luck. shut this down. OK. So I think if we can go in properly with our first question, my first question is, can you just tell us how did this start? What is the history of this situation? So uh, another controversial and difficult question to answer. Oh, sorry. Uh, so, uh, I think they're all going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could go back to the Bible. Um, I think luckily for, for the audience, we're not going to do that because we'd be here for quite some time. But, you know, obviously that's how um, Israel and many people in Israel will legitimise Israel is that we were here 2,000 years ago and we just came back after a small period of absence. But you could also go back to the late 19th century, which is what we saw as the, the birth of uh, Zionism, which is basically the Jewish national movement. And that was in response to anti-Semitism in Europe. We could also go back to the early 20th century when you saw sort of the Zionist uh, movement sending um, Jews from Europe to, at that time, what was called Palestine. So the Zionist vision was very much about, you know, trying to return to the land of Zion, trying to return to Israel. But the narrative at the time that was pushed forward, and this was also part of, you know, we were still in a very much European colonial perspective, and the idea was this is a, a people without a land for a land without a people. Mm -hmm. Of course, it, it wasn't that straightforward because there was a people there, which were Arabs and, and, what's, and Palestinians, and inevitably that created some friction. Fast forward to like 1917, where um, the British Empire, in, a, in order to try to elicit support from uh, Arab tribes that were fighting the Ottomans, who we were also fighting at that time, promised Palestine to them as part of a, this thing, the Trans-Arab Empire. 
But at the same time, and no one knew this, they also promised Palestine to the Zionist movement. What, the British Empire did? Yeah. Oh, come back to those dicks. Not knowing, yeah, what the left hand's doing. That's terrible. Uh, And there was, I'm sure we'll have a chance maybe to talk about anti-Semitism and how this was, but but also part of the thing that was behind the British promise was also anti-Semitism because British officials thought that Jews were all controlling and that actually by promising uh, the land of Israel to them, they would be able to to gain uh, Jewish influence over the American administration at the time and try to to get the Americans to be more supportive of the, in the, and to enter the First World War. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward now uh, to the end of the First World War. During that time, Palestine became a mandate of Britain. Uh, but Britain realised it was too much to handle in terms of these two, you know, this Jewish national movement, Zionism versus the Palestinian national movement. So it basically pushed off everything to the UN, which, broadly speaking, uh, agreed to partition the land. That didn't go down too well, so we had our first war. Israel won. Israel was created. Mm-hmm. We had a few more wars, and then fast forward to 1967. So this was now by now the third Arab-Israeli war. Israel again won, and they took over what's called the West Bank, East Jerusalem, which is very important to Jews because this is you know, their holy, her holiest place. Uh, and they also took over Gaza. And so this is in 1967. This is the start of what we now refer to as the occupation, which is the occupation of Palestinian territory. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about two-state solution... This is what we're basically referring to as kind of the occupation that started in 1967 because we now as an international community recognise Israel's right to exist yeah. within the borders that existed before 1967. So that's very long and complicated, but that's basically the, the essence of it. No, I mean, that is a, a, a good answer. Um, thank you. <laughs> no laughs yet. Yeah. Oh, gosh, it's just hard to know what to... I feel dreadful because I, I don't know so little about the issue. I have no hardly anything and hearing you talk about it makes me realise I know even less <laughs> than, than mm-hmm. I thought. I was thinking uh, do you know if there's ever been another sort of situation a similar comparable situation in history mm. anywhere else or is this such a such a unique set of circumstances mm. do, you, do you know if there's anything in history that's been similar? Yeah for sure and I think what's interesting before I answer that oh, is yeah. that you have both people who are supporters of the Palestinian cause but also who will say, you know, this is a unique situation. Mm-hmm. Um, we've never seen anything like this. And then conversely, you have people, supporters of the Israeli government, the settler movement, who say, hang on, how come you're singling us out? Mm-hmm. And if you're singling us out and making unfair criticism, a criticism that you're not leveling against Syria or, you know, Scotland, Scotland's occupied, sometimes you hear them say, yeah. I mean, why aren't you going after the UK and others? Yeah. And, you know, and the Israeli government basically says, uh, and this is now a definition that's being adopted in, in some parliaments, which is a definition of anti-Semitism, which is basically unfairly singling out Israel when you don't do that uh, vis-à-vis other conflicts and situations. So to answer your question, as with everything, I think the truth is somewhere in between. In the eyes of international law, at a minimum, the, the Palestinian territories of West Bank, East Jerusalem, and still Gaza, is considered to be occupied territory. And there actually aren't that many other territories that are considered to be occupied according to international law. It's a bit debatable, but we could put Western Sahara in it, which has been uh, occupied, annexed by Morocco. So this is probably the bit now that will get everyone in trouble with the with a lot of Moroccans listening to this, who <laughs> would argue that actually, no, that's not the case. Yeah. But international law, that's how it has how um, the Western Sahara is seen. Is Gibraltar occupied? Not under oh, okay. according to international law. <laughs> just just asking. But uh, I was thinking, like, is it perhaps unique in terms of like how significant the area is? 
in religious terms, yeah. maybe. I don't know. So I think it's, you know, I think, as I said, there's a few territories that are that are occupied, you know, Crimea, uh, oh, which Russia course. annexed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think there are nonetheless a few particularities that do make the Palestinian situation, I think, a bit more acute in terms of what's happening. These other territories do have a degree of settlement activity. I would argue that what is happening in the Palestinian territories is, I think, probably on a far grander scale in terms of numbers and government activities and energies that's going into this. But I think the another reason that I think that makes the Palestinian situation stand out a bit more is, of course, our own complicity in this. I mean, our own relations, not just with Israel, which I would argue are completely legitimate, but it's also our relations with the settlements. There is European financial support, whether direct or indirect, for these settlements. And we have a long history of trying to advance peace and failing. And so I think there's a, a few things that mean that we are much more involved in this and that what happens there does affect us, rightly or wrongly, but it does affect us far more on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, we're having this podcast about the Palestinian issue. We put on the TV and you, you're more likely to see something about that than you are about Western Sahara or somewhere else. And so, mm-hmm. so there is also, I think, this sort of a long-running narrative that has existed in our society about the, the Palestinian struggle. What's the difference between Hezbollah and Hamas and Fatah and the PLO and the Palestinian Authority? So Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, one is Palestinian and the other is Lebanese. But they are often sort of conflated um, together because they're both, I would say, parties that promote political Islam, even though Hamas is Sunni and and Hezbollah is Shiite. Um, Oh, not that old thing again. (laughs) That old thing. (laughs) But but they're also, to varying degrees, supported by Iran. But I see them nonetheless, you know, as I said, one's Lebanese, one's Palestinian. They think they're affected by different dynamics. Uh, and, and Hamas is mostly in Gaza at the moment. In terms of, so, and then Fatah is sort of the other dominant party within Palestinian politics. It's the party of the current president, Mahmoud Abbas, and was the party of Yasser Arafat, who some people may have, may have heard of before. And it's been the sort of the, one of the parties that's been the, historically the most associated with sort of the secular left resistance to Palestine or mm-hmm. the struggle against Palestine. Um, and then the, the PLO is basically this umbrella organization which brings together basically all of the uh, sort of the left wing or secular groups. So, but Hamas is not a member. If I take this opportunity to plug some of my work, so there is actually, we have this thing that ECFR's put together called um, Mapping Palestinian Politics, which has like all this information uh, explained much better than I ever could. Right, I'm going to ask a question that I think is going to get cut. And how, which of those are terrorists? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, I think that's an important point. And I think it does also show how our view and engagement with parties changes over the years. So Fatah, which is now you know, very much mainstreamed in terms of European recognition and engagement and is the party of the president mm-hmm. for at least, I think, two decades uh, since it was founded in the 60s up until the 80s. Europe and the US considered it to be a terrorist organization and uh, Yasser Arafat, its head to be a terrorist organization, and so too the PLO. Mm-hmm. And then there was during the 80s, because there's a recognition that you need basically the PLO to be involved in peace with Israel, there was a process of trying to bring uh, the PLO in from the cold. And they did that by basically getting the PLO to recognize Israel and, and commit to a two-state solution. Hamas is still considered to be a terrorist organization. However, you know, I think if you read history books about how Europe and the US approached the PLO and the issues with the PLO at the time, and if you look at what's happening with Hamas at the moment, I think there's certainly some parallels, even though obviously there's many differences in a different context. 
But I think with Hamas also, there is sort of debate about, you know, our policy of trying to boycott it, sanction it, is not working. Mm -hmm. I think there's also recognition that there's far, far, far worse groups in Gaza than Hamas. And Hamas, I think it's important to say, is not Al-Qaeda. Like, neither group is particularly nice. But I think there is a world of difference in terms of the ideology and what they want to do. And I think Hamas, to a certain extent, does want to reach out uh, to the international community and, and legitimize itself. So I think the question is, you know, whether Hamas could ever do enough in terms of moderation for there to be a degree of official engagement between Europe and it. And going back to the question about, you know, are there lessons for Northern Ireland? Yeah. I think absolutely. In terms of, you know, how we saw some of the groups there, you know, officially calling them terrorists, but then slowly opening back channels. So, you know, I don't think we're, we're quite there yet with Hamas, but, but maybe that's something relevant to dwell upon at some point. Most people living in, like, the West Bank who are would consider themselves Israeli, what do they think about all of this? How do they perceive it? Israeli settlers are not that happy, by and large. There is obviously, I think there's a component of the Israeli settler population which is there for probably more economic reasons because the Israeli government has actually put in place a number of incentives to actually attract people towards the settlements, like economic benefits, I think in some some cases tax breaks, etc. I was going to say, why would, why would you yeah. move there? Better quality of life, you pay okay. less. They've also connected the settlements to Tel Aviv and so, you know, it's like almost like a suburban commuter belt. But you obviously also have then a, a more uh, hardcore religious, ideological, national religious or national component that's there for, as I said, for religious or national reasons. Yeah. But clearly when they want to interact with us in Europe and the settlements become an issue in the in these relations, then, yeah, then this, this causes problems. Because so, in the current times, there's a lot talked about how Britain is divided and there's so yeah. much division in Britain about mm. Europe. And I guess... Is, well, we have it easy compared to what's going on there. <laughs> but is there a similar kind of division among... So there's, there's plenty of, I think, uh, fissures or um, divisions within Israeli society, but they generally extend first and foremost to other issues in terms of religious and personal issues. So, for example, during Shabbat, which is uh, Friday sunset to Saturday sunset, Religious Jews don't work, don't usually don't travel, um, um, etc. There's obviously a large component of Israeli Jewish society that's secular. Yes. But there may be no bus services where they live because it's Shabbat. Some, you know, shops may be closed because it's Shabbat. And so this is like, you know, a big point of discussion uh, within society, within Israeli society. So I'd say that's the like one of the, the bigger issues. But of course, there is the, the issue about occupation and how they relate to Palestinians which perhaps was more prescient maybe 10, 15 years ago, but I think so it's now um, less of a priority, but it's still there about, you know, uh, does one annex all the Palestinians? Should we separate from them, etc.? And so, so no, it's there. But, um, but I think we have seen, I think, the, the issue of Palestinian statehood, the two-state solution being less present within general day-to-day -day Israeli discourse. Um, is it possible to be... Israeli and and not Jewish, if that makes sense. Actually, there's no such thing as Israeli nationality. Okay. So Israelis have ID cards, mm -hmm. and what's written there is you're either you're Jewish or Arab. It has that's how it, it um, designates you. So there is a there is a 
a sizable minority of Israel's population that is not Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that probably refers to itself as Palestinian. You know, But then there's other components which would more refer to themselves as Arab, so they would downplay the, the Palestinian national identity side. And I think we've seen a process since Israel's founding where where there's been these policies in place which try to dilute the Palestinian national identity mm-hmm. of um, those Palestinians, Arabs, that stayed in Israel after the 1948 war, uh, and in, to- in order to try to, to integrate them into Israeli society. So the idea is we recognize you as individuals, not necessarily always as minorities with collective rights and national rights. So yes, to answer your question, there are non-Jews in Israel, but you know, some, especially uh, you know, the, the community that refers to itself as Palestinian, Palestinian Arab, frequently talks about, you know, day-to-day discrimination. Mm-hmm. In terms of legislation, it's less apparent. On, uh, on paper, they're mostly equal, although there's been a, a move over the last year to actually put, you could argue, Jews above everyone else. This is a very, very controversial uh, law called the, the nation-state law. But, but certainly in day-to-day practice, there's that discrimination. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a work in progress, I think. So if a baby is born in the West Bank, mm-hmm. what passport do they have? This is actually one of my favourite uh, questions. Oh. <laughs> but it's probably more about how geeky I am. <laughs> if the, the baby is Israeli, uh, from Israeli parents, yeah. born in an Israeli settlement, so the settlements are Israeli towns, villages, outposts that have been built illegally, according to international law, mm-hmm. in occupied Palestinian territory in East Jerusalem, uh, the West Bank now. So if a baby is born in one of those settlements, um, they are Israeli. You know, they'll have an Israeli passport and they'll, have, they'll be treated basically no different from someone born in Tel Aviv. Yeah. However, in our eyes, in the eyes of Europeans and the international community, we see that differently. Okay. And so the problem is if you have, say, a British national uh, who happens to live in a settlement and he applies for a British passport, yeah. what do we put in the passport? And so the usual practice is if he's born in Jerusalem, um, it's not, it is not to put Jerusalem Israel. Yeah. It is merely to put Jerusalem in it okay. because you don't recognize Israeli sovereignty over East Jerusalem and nor really over Jerusalem. But that's a more complicated reason that go, uh, called the corpus separatum, which uh, we won't get into <laughs> at the moment. Um, basically, Europe you know, has a duty to differentiate between Israel and the settlements and the occupied territories because, you know, we have to uphold our own policies, our own positions and international law. Yeah. As you can imagine, sometimes that creates a bit of a friction with our with our Israeli friends. So what you're saying is don't have a baby in West Bank. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it extends to everything. You had a guest before who was talking about, uh, you know, a farmer talking about chickens. And, yeah. And, you know, we import stuff from Israel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we're not able to import poultry products from the settlements because we cannot recognise uh, Israeli veterinary checks in the settlements. Oh, I'll give you God. a second to digest that. So, talking about the two-state solution, what are the objections to that and where do they come from? Palestinians are probably, one could say, by and large, the most supportive of it now. The two-state solution is relatively new, because, as I said, although the occupation started in 1967, for quite some time the Palestinian national movement still wanted to reclaim all of Palestine. So it wanted the, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, but also what is now present-day Israel, because it, it didn't want to partition. Yeah. But through intensive international diplomatic efforts, not to get into details, but basically starting in the late 70s, 80s, uh, the PLO, which is the main representative of the Palestinians, accepted a two-state solution, which Palestinians would say is a compromise on mm-hmm. their part. Now, I think for Israel, it's a bit more difficult. You have a, a strand within Israeli politics and society that's much more maximalistic in its demands and much more ideological. And you know that strand of politics and society is in power at the moment. 
and they basically want all of the land because you know the West Bank is referred to as Judea and Samaria yeah. and it's particularly important to the Jewish national movement because that is kind of when you read the Bible that is where a lot of the, the Bible took place and so they have an ideological claim to it in their eyes and so that strand of Israeli politics as a society has been much more resistant mm-hmm. to compromise they have to a certain extent moved towards compromise and the, the center-left Labour Party also, but under usually under pressure from the US and sometimes from Europe to do this. But in my view, it, it's questionable whether they've ever fully been able to go far enough to meet Palestinian demands and whether the Palestinians have been able to concede enough mm-hmm. to meet Israeli demands. So we are where we are today, basically, which is um, with this idea of a two-state solution receding um, from the horizon. So where do uh, the Israeli government at the moment... Where do they want the Palestinians to go if they take this land? There's different theories, even on the right, about how you you deal with this. And in many ways, those ideas have been around since the 70s, since the two-state solution was starting being pushed. And so, basically, my take on right-wing Israeli politics is, I think where we are now is probably um, the centre of gravity doesn't want an independent, sovereign Palestinian state. You know, okay. with borders and real sovereignty. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think there's a recognition they cannot absorb all the Palestinian population. Mm-hmm. Because basically, you know, Israel, you could say in right-wing vision, has three components, three characteristics. So democratic, Jewish, and has the territory. Yeah. But actually, you can't have all three things. You can have the territory and be Jewish, but you're not democratic, etc., etc. Yeah. So if you were to absorb millions of Palestinians, it creates a demographic imbalance, which therefore jeopardizes Jewish character and democracy. And so the question mark for decades, in my view, has always been you know, how you square that circle. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen from the 70s onwards, starting you know, with Begin, who was the Israeli prime minister, and, and others, and these are right-wing prime ministers, although the talking points, I think, have been adopted by the centre-left now, but it's to try to create a, a sense of Palestinian autonomy and self-rule. But it's this idea that you know, we try to cater to your economic needs, to a certain degree, your political needs, but you can't have full sovereignty. You remain under Israeli control. Okay. And I think that's where the, the center of gravity is. Um, you know, of course, you have those who are more idealistic on the left and the right that w- would go for a full one state, uh, perhaps with equal, a certain degree of equal rights. Yeah. But I don't think that's where the right is at the moment, which is, and it's the right which is very much in power uh, within Israel. If you're enjoying Any Stupid Questions, why not rate and review? Wait till it's finished. Don't just stop halfway because that also affects our advertising, I think. But when you get to the end of the podcast, rate and review it. Thank you very much. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Can I ask about anti-Semitism? Mm-hmm. Europe has this horrible history of anti-Semitism. And that f- seems to be on the rise. Why is that happening? I think on the on the left, of course, it's always been around, unfortunately. And it's always been around on the right. Perhaps the, um, 
the drivers of this anti-Semitism is a bit different on the left because maybe it's born more out of anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism. Perhaps on the right, it's much more driven by fascism, neo-Nazism, etc. God, you can't win being Jewish, <laughs> can you? <laughs> and I think there's also this, um, this deliberate campaign that's been pushed by the Israeli government and organisations that promote and defend the settler movement to try to broaden the definition of anti-Semitism. And so I think this now, and I think this is also why a lot of people get into trouble, because there's a bit of a, a grey zone between the you know, things that are obviously outright anti-Semitic, and then this criticism of Israel that everyone says is legitimate. Yeah. And I think you see both sides like trying to it's this uh, tug of war, trying to to redefine what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. And we've seen this, you know, in the case of U.S. Congressman Ilan Omar. Uh, she put out a tweet a few days ago, uh, which said, what was it, like, oh, it's all about the... Um, the Benjamins, I think. The Benjamins, which is obviously a reference to US dollar bills. Yeah. And that was in reference to uh, a story about sort of the pro-Israel lobby in the US. And so you could read her tweet two ways. One is that she was attacking the, the money that's inherent in the US lobby. But the way she framed it it obviously plays to a lot of traditional anti-Semitic tropes, this idea of, you know, the, the Jews controlling the world with lots of money. And certainly I think the way she framed the tweet was it the most um, articulate way. Because what's quite fascinating is if, like, and not everybody agrees with this, but as a white person, it is not my place to decide what is racist. Mm. It isn't. Like, I don't believe that. I would take my guidance from people of colour. But with anti-Semitism... Again, I don't believe it's my place to decide what anti-Semitism is. That is a Jewish person's uh, decision or, you know, collectively. But that doesn't seem to be the case. A lot of people who aren't Jewish seem to want to decide what anti-Semitism is uh, in the way that, you know, white people would never decide what racism is. And again, I'm confused as to why that is the Mm. case. I think this this is what makes it uh, very difficult for everyone. I think certainly uh, the only... And the best starting point is, of course, you know, how Jews feel about this. Yeah. But I think what makes this very difficult is that Israel itself defines itself as a Jewish state. Yeah. So when you criticize Israel, you know, uh, this okay. comes with... I understand. Um, this can be easily misconstrued by either side yeah. as also being criticism against the Jewish people. And we're also dealing with a conflict between two national movements. And so I think this is perhaps another source of... Um, contestation but also i would say is i think what makes it more difficult is because it's also you know by um, expanding what anti-semitism is which is now often taken to be unjust criticism of israel Mm -hmm. even now um, you know anti-zionism is often seen as anti-semitism which perhaps would have been the case 10 20 years ago yeah but what this is also doing is it's, it's shrinking the space for palestinians to push back and for people who support the Palestinians to push back. And again, I feel the need to say, you know, obviously there's no justification for, for anti-Semitism. But I think, you know, what is and what is not anti-Semitism is, is still, in some cases, contentious. Are there people, left-wing people in Israel, who are fighting against Netanyahu? And is it likely that at any point they will come into power mm. and try to decolonize, and we can all... Live in peace. Live in peace, yeah. Is that going to happen? No. (laughs) I mean, maybe one day. But um, but I would say, like, the left in Israel is having a particularly bad moment. Okay. And the Israeli Labour Party is also having a a very bad moment. 
In in what way? So, in terms of so there will be elections in Israel uh, in April. The Labour Party is currently it's in the opposition, mm-hmm. but it's a sizable party. I forget the exact number of MPs it has, but I think it's it's about twenty four or something. According to current polls, it's probably uh, if elections were held today, they'd probably have about six. Oh no, they're the Lib Dems of Israel. <laughs> Did they promise something to do with students? Yeah. Loans? <laughs> um, I think the the lesson is don't try to uh, to emulate the right when you're not the right. Uh, oh, is that what it is? So they've been trying. They're losing. They'll lose seats because they've tried to follow the right. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's really fascinating. And the the current head of the Labour Party was himself a former member of Likud, which is a right-wing party. Oh, God. But I don't feel too bad because I would argue, and this will probably be the, another thing that will get me in trouble, is you know I don't even view the Israeli Labour Party as left anymore. Yeah. Mm. I would say it's centre-left. But... Maybe that's a optimistic thing. If the if people aren't voting for them because they've gone too right, that means that there is an appetite for a genuine left wing uh, Labour Party in Israel. Or you could just vote for the real thing and vote for the right. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. So, oh, so, it, so, so there isn't a big group of people who are like, stop decolonization, stop. No. So no, stop colonization. I think the the center of gravity in Israel is center right, right. Okay. And, you know, before the Labour Party always modelled itself as the peace camp and, you know, and, the, and talked a lot about ending the occupation, etc. But that's not, again, that's not really part of their discourse anymore. And when they do talk about it, it's not about ending the occupation. It's about what they call is basically separation. But it's still with an overarching Israeli security control over the Palestinians, which I would argue is not real deoccupation. Yeah. And so the left... In the the sort of the proper left in Israel is called Meretz, and that similarly normally has about five MPs every election. And then you have the uh, Arab-Israeli or Palestinian-Israeli groups, which are there and exist, and together they're probably about 13 seats, although they're also having a bit of a, a, bit of a moment. Oh. oh. I've never been accused of leaving people with a hopeful uh, message. <laughs> When someone like Tony Blair is made a Middle East peace envoy, what what does a peace envoy do? And um, does it does it help to have a people as peace envoy? I'm just trying to imagine a day in the life. You know, the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, yeah. he's got yeah. previous. That was good. Yeah, I just trying to imagine like the average day. Like you do a few emails. Oh, what you, what you get up to as a peace yeah, envoy? Yeah, yeah. Have some coffee. I don't know. How do you how do you literally go about? Peace. I don't know. Mercifully, he's no longer peace envoy. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember when he was torso of the week in Heat magazine. So, <laughs> was that before or after the Good Friday Agreement? That was uh, before the Good Friday. Oh wow! Agreement. So, if anything, that torso just got hotter. The diplomatic influences in Palestine and Israel. Do they ever look at the Good Friday Agreement? Is that ever considered a benchmark for peace? So there is. Um branch of expertise on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that has looked at the Irish conflict and what's been happening in Northern Ireland. So yeah, I think that's obviously that's taken into account and there are, especially in terms of how that informs civil society, people-to-people initiatives. Mm -hmm. I'm somewhat more sceptical of this. Not that there's not things to learn about the Good Friday Agreement, but I think in, in Northern Ireland, we'd reached a point where both sides kind of realised they needed to, to move forward and try to figure it out. And I don't see 
on the Palestinian on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I don't see us in that position at the moment, um, where those lessons would be currently relevant. I think we're much more about how you can actually, on the Israeli side, change the the cost-benefit calculations to actually uh, encourage Israelis to view deoccupation as a more favourable outcome than continued occupation. Yeah, and I suppose in in the Good Friday Agreement, Tony Blair was at least he was he was on one one side of it rather than sort of coming from the outside. I just wonder about how sometimes high-profile sort of peacemakers yeah, coming from the outside. Everybody's had a stab at it, haven't yeah. they? <laughs> and, and, and how you even go about it. I mean, it must be really tough to sort of start. Yeah, I know. That well. would be the, that'd be, oh, no, not this. Um, <laughs> when America and Cuba were in conflict, they got the Pope involved because both sides trusted him. Who's the equivalent for uh, Palestine and Israel? So I don't think we have that equivalent at the moment. Batman, sorry. Oh. <laughs> For the last uh, 20 years, it's the US that's been the main mediator of peace. Oh, um, no. Well, yeah, and that's probably what the Palestinians are saying now. Um, I, there was never, I think on the Palestinian side, there was always a, a realisation that the Americans were never completely neutral or honest yeah. in, in, in brokering peace agreements. Uh, but the, still, they were reasonably or relatively uh, objective. Yeah. I think that's no longer the view on the Palestinian side because um, the Trump administration has been, has been taking a number of particularly egregious actions against the Palestinians, mm. basically recognising Jerusalem as Israel's capital yeah, and also cutting money to the Palestinians and, and Palestinian refugees, etc. So that's discredited the Americans in the eyes of the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And the Palestinians would be much more happy if, say, Europe, the European Union or even Russia or someone else, anyone else. Yeah, could literally anybody else. Literally <laughs> anyone else. But of course Israel would not agree to this. Why does the recognition of Jerusalem as the Israeli capital matter? So, good question. And I think this is the one where I tend to be more in the minority when I talk to uh, other with European officials or other European uh, think tankers. So at the moment, there's a, and I may have mentioned this before, corpus separatum, which basically means we don't recognise any side's sovereignty over Jerusalem, either West yeah or east mm-hmm. and this this policy has been in place since um since basically 1948 and then in 1967 you know east jerusalem was occupied yeah by israel and then in the 80s it was legally annexed now in my view there's a this difference between the corporate separatum and um how international law views the occupation so my own position for what it's worth which is nothing is that you know I don't think it's a big deal if we recognize West Jerusalem as Israel's capital so long as we recognize East Jerusalem as Palestine's capital yeah. even if it's still under occupation but since mercifully for everyone I don't make European <laughs> policy you know European states uh, the UK up until recently the US and basically every other country still upholds this corporate separatum idea that the the future status of Jerusalem has to be negotiated during uh, what's called final status negotiations. And so this is why I think a lot of people get quite anxious or got quite anxious when the US recognised Jerusalem. Jack? The, the way it's often framed in the sort of the justification of the Israeli actions is that Palestine and other Arabic countries want to destroy Israel. Is that sort of, I mean, that's unique to this situation and how true is that and... Is that sort of part of the reason that this is such a mess, is that it's about, like, 
like they can actually exist or like fundamentally. And can I chip in what might be a stupid question on top of that? Do they want Israel to not exist at all or do they just want to shift it along a bit? So, you know, the Israeli narrative has very much been, you know, Israel confronting Arab armies, aggressive Arab neighbours. And for a large part of Israel's history, that's, of, I think, entirely true and accurate. And Israel's done a very good job of uh, pushing back and winning. Yeah. But I think now, I don't actually think that's the, the situation. I mean, in terms of Israeli and Israeli-Arab conflict, which we used to talk about, I don't think that's the case. Certainly there's an Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm-hmm. But I think in terms of other Arab states... Jordan, Egypt now have a peace treaty. Mm-hmm. But even states that don't have a peace treaty, and I suppose are technically still at war with Israel, are actually now increasingly moving to normalize their relations. And this is particularly true for Gulf states. So we had the Israeli prime minister who made a quite a remarkable trip to Oman a few months back and shook the hand of the Omani sultan. Mm-hmm. We've had Israeli ministers visiting United Arab Emirates openly, publicly. And we've known that these relations have existed for uh, for years now, at the security level particularly. But we are seeing this normalization coming out into public, like yeah. out of the closet. And I think what this does indicate is that I think that there's a new sort of geopolitical alignment that's forming in the Middle East, uh, mainly as a way, I think, in the eyes of its of uh, Arab leaders to try to push back against Iranian influence, which they see far more as something that's far more pressing and important yeah. than the Palestinian issue. But I think the question now is, can Israel advance peace with its Arab neighbours without resolving the Palestinian issue? And has any of this to do with nuclear weapons uh, in terms of Iran being the threat yeah. and Israel being an ally? When you, uh, when you listen to... Um, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, other Israeli politicians and members of the security establishment, they tend to put the Iranian issue as sort of number one in terms of existential threats. Yeah. To open a parenthesis, it's quite interesting that you do have former members or heads of the Mossad, which is basically the Israeli equivalent of uh, MI6, saying that actually the most existential question is actually the Palestinian issue. Okay, closing the parenthesis. <laughs> but, um, but I think that is still the, when you listen to Israeli discourse, Iran is seen as a big threat. And so Israeli leaders have tried to forge alliances with these Arab states and also encourage the American administration to be much more confrontational in order to try to push back Iranian activities in Syria, Lebanon and, and elsewhere. Uh, we've got time oh. for one more question each, one quick question. Oh, <laughs> having too much fun. <laughs> I was just going to say, um, you mentioned in your overview of the history the... Mm. British Empire. Mm-hmm. I remember those guys. They've yeah. turned up as the villain in other things as well. Um, but is that is that like anti-British feeling in the area? The advantage that Britain has at the moment is Palestinians and, and other people in the Middle East have far stronger feelings against other countries than the UK at the moment. Oh, that's oh. good. Down the lead table. Yeah. Good. Um, so no, I don't think there's a a strong anti-British sentiment in the Palestinian territories. There may be a strong anti-British sentiment in Iraq and other places for other reasons, which we won't go into. But no, I don't think... I think, if anything, there is a strong um, feeling of of friendship towards Europeans because Europe is seen as more supportive of Palestinian rights. But I think there's still a, a desire, if you ask Palestinians, for the UK to actually fulfil its... what's called the Balfour Declaration, which was basically Britain saying... 
uh, we recognize uh, the rights of the Jewish people to have a homeland at that time in uh, well, in Israel or a mandate Palestine, as, as it was called. But it also had a second part, which is basically nothing should be done to prejudice the rights of the original Arab inhabitants. Arguably, that hasn't really, that second part hasn't really been fulfilled. And so I think if you ask Palestinians, that's probably the thing they'll, uh, they'll mention to you. Jack, have you got a funny question? Best case scenario in five years' time, wh- where are we? Is it good? Please say it's good. <laughs> mm. You challenged me to try to come up with an optimistic it's, scenario it's, in my head. And it's got to be good. There can be yeah. nothing bad. Uh, it's difficult to see things getting vastly better. Okay. I think <laughs> if you ask, say, some European governments, their probably optimistic scenario is nothing's changed. Wow. So okay. we're not really sort of pushing things forward, but at least things haven't um, okay. regressed. I personally think things are going to get much worse because I'm just probably an eternal... Uh, glass half empty person but i think if one wanted to fast forward it a bit more i think there's always a question about you know um on the palestinian side which is having uh, going through a profound moment of historical weakness in terms of strategy the, the identity of national of the national liberation movement uh, other components i think you kind of have to believe at some point they'll get through that maybe not in five years but you know there is a, when you when you talk to um you know young palestinians i think that is a a source of a lot of optimism in terms of uh, how they will view and how they will approach uh, the conflict going forward and in ways that completely discredit v- violence, that embrace uh, non-violent resistance, but look at some, you know, perhaps innovative, disruptive strategies based on rights and equal rights. I think that could be a sort of an interesting scenario. And, you know, there's part of this young generation that's progressive, you know, into dance music, rap, mm. hip hop, underground music that has a lot in common can I say hipster? Like, basically, the hipsters of Tel Aviv. <laughs> and so, you know, I think there is, even if they're not interacting at the moment, there is, I think, a degree of potential intersectionality between young Israelis and young Palestinians. So that that would be my uh, my attempt at grasping at something positive. So, like, in 10 years' time, they may be like, oh, I like Kendrick Lamar, too. And then... <laughs> I won't comment on Kendrick Lamar, but... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I have one final question. Do you think the conflict would be made a lot worse or a lot better by allowing Palestine to enter the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> Obviously much better. Much better. Yeah. So. Oh, and no one's thought of it. I mean, I'm full of all the good ideas. Um, thank you so much, Hugh. That was, like, not as terrifying as I thought it was going to be. Well, I think that's it for this week. Thanks to Hugh Lovett, Jack Bernhard and Clarissa Maycock. That was the last Any Stupid Questions of Series 3. We'll be back at some point with a fourth series, but if you have any subjects you want us to cover, whether it's the royal family, China or the music industry, tweet us and we will try and find an expert for you. Thank you so much for listening and please do rate and review and tell your friends. I've been Danielle Ward and the producer was Ed Morris. Cheers. Cheers.